It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Picture a rapper. Now, he's a Muslim. He's from Minnesota. He's white. He's an albino. Maybe that's not what you expected, but my guest, Brother Ali, is that rapper, and he still manages to find expectations to defy. Ali's new EP, The Truth Is Here, like his previous work, is a raw document about family, faith, and seeking happiness in tough times. I'm so happy to have him on the show. Uh, Ali, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks for having me, man. Um, something I feel like I, I, I've only gotten uh, a hazy picture of in reading uh, reading about you and listening to your work, just a, a, a sort of little snippets here and there, is your childhood. It, it sounds like you had one of those childhoods where you were a, a million different places m- moving all the time. I basically got to live in a lot of different types of situations as a child. I was born in Madison, Wisconsin, and... Um, I moved away from there when I was a little kid. I don't really remember living there. Um, and then I lived in, a, in little towns throughout Michigan. You know, just even switching from one side of town to the other, or from the city to the suburbs, or back and forth within those cities, you know, kept us pretty much moving around every year or two. Um, and then when I was 15, I moved to Minneapolis. Or I should say my family moved to Minneapolis, and that's where I really feel like I came into my own and that's where I settled and you know I'm 30 now so that's you know half my life and this is this is home to me because it's the only place I've ever had roots it's tough for anybody to as a kid be be in a new place all the time it must have been very difficult for you especially as an albino to just go into every new situation as the kid that's different exactly yep I was the albino kid until um, until I got to be about 12, I even younger than that, really, until I got to be about eight or nine years old. And then I discovered that I could not, I didn't have to always be, just be the albino kid. I could be the albino kid that raps and, and b-boy or breakdance. I read you somewhere saying that you didn't even remember when you started being an MC. Um, that, that I might have been exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> you know, part of being albino is that your your vision is really bad impaired on a lot of different ways like it's just plain you know numbers wise like everybody else who has poor vision it's it's rough but then also the sun is so you know that brightness is so extreme to us that um you know it kind of it's very difficult to do stuff like sports and things like that so um you know once I started really venturing outside my house and trying to figure out what's going on with other kids I was really a, a loner until I was seven or eight and the first people that I met when I left my house and just kind of went down the block where these two older kids, bad kids, you know, they never had, I never saw a parent at their house once, you know, living with them around them for a year. Um, and they were B-boys and they loved hip hop. So I'd heard about it. And, um, I just saw these kids outside in their yard doing this and they would, they would rap and they were just, they were all about hip hop and they, you know, they smoked cigarettes and, used to jump off the roof of their house, and they were just wild kids. And me and my little brother, we wanted to grow up and be them. So that, you know, I got really involved in hip-hop right away. And the the full lifestyle used to, you know, try to do little graffiti stuff. And, you know, like I said, started out breakdancing and eventually started making the music, started writing and memorizing other people's rhymes. as how when I was, you know, seven, eight years old, I could say every Melly Mel rap there ever was, you know, Slick Rick, Run DMC, 
I knew all these guys' rhymes that I could recite them verbatim and almost do their voice. So I did that when it was almost kind of like a party trick where I would go to a new school and find the hip hop kids and, uh, you know, might just walk up and and uh, just start doing Run DMC at the top of my lungs and would make friends like that. And I would do talent shows and things like that. And then um, as I became a teenager, I started writing my own songs and it became a lot more of an identity thing for me that this is how I relate to the world. You know, because like you said, as Albano, it really is different. You're not, you don't, you're not really part of anything in terms of just normal identity. I didn't even, and it, it kind of led to a racial, um, uh, an interesting racial identity for me, where I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere racially, and kind of felt like I was my own thing. sort of a geographical regional question. I had Bun B on the show um, maybe a month or two ago, yeah. and I talked to him a little bit about w what it was like to be doing hip-hop in the early to mid-'80s in uh, Texas, where there was very little hip-hop that, that had made a national impact at the time. And, you know, you're talking about places like uh, Madison and Minneapolis that are far from the first places that people think of when they think of hip-hop. Right. Um, even even now, twenty years later, what, what was it like? What was it like then? What was the what was the music that you really admired? What what was the what was the hip hop world that you that you lived in? And how, how do you think it might have been different from somebody who was, you know, growing up in in New York or L A. Well, I think um, I think all of us initially were hit by New York. If if you're around kind of that early, and when I you know I got it was eighty four that I really started listening. And um, so, you know, I was aware that there was someone named Ice-T. Um, I was, you know, later on, I was aware that there was Too Short. Um, but for me, hip-hop was New York. And so we were listening to the guys that I mentioned earlier, but UTFO was really big. Rakim, when Rakim came out, he blew my mind. And uh, KRS-One and Chuck D, that's kind of my, my trinity of men that I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, and so I really, the way that I saw hip hop growing up initially was that it was this just expression thing that you could just go be wild and be yourself. And, and, you know, these guys were talking to us. This wasn't our parents' music. This wasn't um, even society's music. Like hip hop was so misunderstood at that time. And it still is to a certain degree. But at that time, it was underground even in the black community. You know what I mean? We talk about hip-hop having its start in the black community, but even within that, 
it was not the mainstream. You know what I mean? Like the people who played football and got good grades and stuff, they listened to R&B. They weren't listening to rap. Um, so rap was like a subculture within a subculture. And um, it just really felt, you know, when, when, in the late 80s when, when uh, you know, Chuck and KRS and Rakim came out, it felt like this was the way that we were going to become empowered. That like this was going to build us, build our minds and build our community and make us, uh, you know, give feed our lives more than just be a way to just party and have fun and act crazy. But this I, I saw changes in the people around me that really were attached to this music. Um, you know, we wanted to read books and we wanted to, you know, there was a lot about your intellect and just your power as a young man. That was really something that a lot of us really needed. And then, it, you know, as it started to grow, um, you know, also in the late 80s, early 90s, there, there became all these different genres of hip hop. So there was gangster stuff. There was what Bernie Mac calls happy rap, which was like Kid and Play, Heavy D, stuff like that. And there was a down south stuff. And there was, you know, people who were just rapping just to show you how good they were at rapping. There was knowledge stuff. It was all that, all of that. And if you were a hip hop person, then you embraced all of it. And and you really didn't subscribe to this idea that like, well, I listen to this and so fuck all the rest of the rap. I only listen to this. And it was just a it was a magical time, man. Like everything just took these huge. It was just growing in leaps and bounds and the horizons were being expanded all the time. And it was really something special to be a part of. Hip hop has always been a multi-ethnic uh, culture, but there was there was an explosion of um really race conscious hip hop right around that same time, right, right in the late 1980s, you know, with tons of MCs wearing, uh, Africa medallions and, um, defining themselves in terms of being black. Uh, how did that, uh, how did that affect you as someone who, you know, almost, almost saw himself as, as being outside of race in, in a funny way? Well, there, when I was young, I was really confused about it. And, um, I identified with everything black. I always felt like, and this was before, this started before rap, and rap just kind of gave me the ammunition that I felt like I needed spiritually and mentally, um, and the peer group that I needed to help me kind of with that. But, you know, right around the time that I got into rap, or maybe a little bit before that, I really felt out like I wasn't part of the world at all. You know what I mean? I felt like really such a such a, a lonesome person um and just the type of reaction that i got from white kids now i'm you know i mentioned that mainly i was in, i was in the midwest my whole life uh wisconsin really early but mostly michigan is where most of my younger childhood was different cities in michigan there's a lot of like post-industrial um you know kind of like people know a lot about gary indiana but i don't think they realize that that exists gary indiana exists all through the Midwest, where there, where black folks came from the South to to for jobs because there was industry, and then all the industry just left for one reason or another, and you had all these people there with nothing now, nothing to replace that, um, and that existed in all these little cities: Kalamazoo, Flint, Grand Rapids, throughout Michigan and throughout the Midwest, and um, I felt always a lot more comfortable with black folks and also the midwest is not as as racially diverse as the east and west coast are so we didn't have there's not a puerto rican community 
at least then. You know what I mean? There wasn't a, you know, there wasn't a Dominican community, Haitians, Greeks. You know what I mean? It was black and white at that time. And then we'd have a random, you'd have a Mexican kid in your class and an Asian kid in your class. And the Mexican kid was from Guatemala, but we called him the Mexican kid. Um, and so I really associated with black folks right away. I felt embraced. I felt like even though there were jokes, it was for the sake of being funny. Um, the 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 kind of harassment that I got from white folks really felt dehumanizing to me and felt demoralizing and degrading. Whereas black folks were making fun of me, but it was funny. And I was if, if I could be funny, too, then it was a it was fencing. It was, you know, wrestling or like a sword fighting or something like that. And I learned really quick how to talk shit too. how to, I could, you know, snap or do the dozens or whatever with the best of them. And, um, you know, an elder lady kind of noticed what I was going through uh, that worked at a school that I was going to. And um, she just was kind of a, uh, you know, the person that kind of watched over recess and the lunchroom and stuff like that. And she pulled me aside one time and saw that I was just really down and really blue and told me what I imagined she would tell her kids that you can't let people define what you are and you can't define yourself based on how other people view you and she told me some race things too uh, and maybe this is what put me on that road but she was like white folks are very kind of exclusive people and they you know the more you look like them and the, the more you're like them the more they accept you and the less you're like them they don't value you and so you cannot expect for them you can't wait for them to ever tell you that you're a worthy human being. You have to figure out what that means for yourself and then become that and then try to achieve what you think you're supposed to be. And that was really empowering to me. And um, so all through my life, I've just kind of got more and more of this wisdom and things that have helped me become the person that I am. Right around that time that you described, when you finally uh, settled in Minneapolis, you converted to Islam. That's right. Um, what what precipitated that conversion? Um, well, I was always a really spiritual person, and my parents were um, kind of a, a, a generic brand of Christianity. Um, they weren't really religious or that spiritual. We didn't really ever talk about it. We went to church off and on, mainly as a social thing. Um, and then when I got, but I was always really inquisitive and I always had a lot of questions and always really felt like I believed in something. When I was 14, you go through that confirmation process where, where you basically go through a class and then you either join the church as an adult of your own decision or you don't. And almost everybody does. But I, I went through the class and I realized that I didn't believe in this. I didn't believe in the idea of clergy. I didn't believe in um, original sin. There was a lot of things that I just didn't believe. And I said, I'm not going to join this church because I felt like it would be disrespectful to the people that really did believe in it for me to just do it. And uh, my mom cut a deal with me and said, you know, it's kind of, you know, do it for your grandparents and, you know, just kind of do it anyway to make everybody happy and don't embarrass me. And then you don't ever have to come to church again. So that was the last experience I had with Christianity really and um so we did that and then right after that is when i moved to minneapolis and and i really just started searching because of my heroes you know hip-hop really introduced me to malcolm x and through malcolm x um you know i read his autobiography and i got really interested in what is this thing that made him who he was 
and um so I you know started studying Islam and then right when I started studying Islam the the Malcolm X movie came out um and I you know was able to really just kind of see it on the screen and I I realized the more that I actually met Muslims I had all these preconceived notions of what I thought Islam was thought it was really strict and dogs dogmatic thought it was really race based um and the more that I actually started talking to Muslims and reading the Quran for myself I realized this is what I believe in I don't like my life, I gut it, rebuild it, fuck it, keep nothing but God and my children, I kill the devil wherever he resides, even if he hiding in me, he got to die, I killed little Jason, he was only 15, sold his good traits together, made Ali, filled his lungs with the Quran until he breathed, let him walk but kept him on a short leash, here he stand now, 17 year old man child, ain't asked nobody for a motherfucking handout, he trying to carry heaven on on his back, jumped the broom with a stranger, ain't never looked back, what he know about how the world spins, bless his heart, he a virgin, never even had a girlfriend, wanna be a man so bad that he can taste it, his family fell apart and he trying to replace it, you'll find in him a heart the second to none, but I know old soul that his lessons ain't done, so I stand willing to kill him again, if to grow he got to shed his skin and let it be done. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is rapper Brother Ali. His brand new EP is called "The Truth Is Here." Ali, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, about finding a place in hip hop and finding yourself in hip hop. I think it's really interesting that you know a, a lot of MCs use hip hop as a way to uh, create an identity for themselves. Um, yeah. And not just not just find a place for themselves, but to to create an idea of who they are that may may or may not be, you know, a literal reflection of who they are. You know, maybe it's who they want to be or who they'd like people to see them as. Um, and I I I get the feeling from listening to your records that 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 you have a different objective as an MC, almost that you that you want to reflect who you are. I hope to. I hope for that to be the case. And that's interesting that you said that because I, I really have been kind of trying to stress that to people, you know, that I talk to and, and you know, other kind of like thinkers and people who study hip hop, how important that is for people who, you know, because this is a, 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 you know, a very urban, poor people, uh, people of colors art form. And it, it really is a way for people who are just looked down upon and, and written off and ignored and faceless, nameless statistics on a piece of paper um to say i am somebody you know what i mean um and it, and it really is self-affirming but yeah i mean i, I kind of embrace the idea um you know I, I was doing the same thing as everybody else initially like when i was a kid i was just trying to show everybody how good i was at this and make people laugh and yeah i never was saying you know i'm a pimp or i'm a gangster or I'm rich or anything like that, but I was saying I'm the best rapper. You know, that was, it was really important for me to be seen and known as the best rapper that you know personally. Like, sure, Melly Mel's better than me. Sure, you know, uh, whoever on the radio is better than me, but I'm the best person you've ever seen and that you've ever known. That was, that was the way that I always kind of saw it. And as I got older, man, and started making records, I started realizing that that's been done so many times and that 
what people really are need and what makes people connect to art, you know, outside of just the traditional rap audience is just hearing somebody be themselves and be who they are and try to say something personal in a way that it maybe has never been said before, never been said in rap or maybe that just these particular listeners haven't heard it like that before. And I started feeling like that's the that's the best way for me to really make a, a lasting impact. And, you know, I feel like if I just put my own self and my real thoughts, my real feelings, my real personality, try to be as honest and brutally honest as I possibly can about every part of my life, then the people that connect with that are, are I'm not going to lose them. They're not going to. They're not going to decide all of a sudden that they they don't like me anymore, and I'm not now. There's because you know I'm I'm not the toughest guy anymore. I'm not the you know the biggest pimp anymore. Whatever you know, I've, I really felt like that would be the best way for me to have some kind of long lasting connection with listeners. Did you feel like you were making a big choice when you decided to do that? I mean, even many of the you know greatest rappers of 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 that era that you grew up in. Somebody like, say, um, Chuck D, who you could say is is brutally honest and, and it wouldn't be unreasonable to say it, but he's also he's also a character, you know? He's also projecting himself in, in a much less raw and personal way um, than you do on record. Yeah. Um, did you feel like you were, you were taking a departure, you know, taking a step into, into the unknown? In a way, in a way. The thing is that you got to remember that Chuck didn't have that luxury of being able to do that at that time. You know what I mean? You At that time in rap, you kind of had to be uh, a, a big character. You had to be larger than life to be heard at all. Because there was so many people, you know, rap was such a small thing. There was such a small audience for it. And there were so many people all kind of vying for that little bit of spotlight that you had to be larger than life. Um and so you just kind of pick what your character is going to be. And then, you know, you try to you base it on who you are, but then you turn it up to 10. You know, it wasn't really until I, man, I, I have to really credit uh, Tribe Called Quest with being the first people to and, and their movement, the Native Tongue movement, to just come out and say, you know, we're not gangsters. We're not thugs. We're not super intelligent. We're not, you know, pimps. We're not whatever we're kind of a mixture we have a little bit of all that in us but we're just people and i felt like they were the first ones that really just really rode with that you know what i mean um but they they were able to everybody so everybody since them has had that option you know what i mean and I think they really opened it up for the rest of us to, to really just be ourselves. Get your head split. The hell you look like on a message board discussing whether or not the brother is hardcore. I ain't got to prove to any of you that anything I ever said is the truth. But I'm ready to do it. Do it leisurely. And give me 10 beats a week. So fuck it. I put the record how it needs to be. I understand I ain't perfect, all right? I've been a thugged out nerd all my life. Thank God I ain't got to serve dirt and snatch purses at night. I feed people with the verses I write. And I fill them with my personal strife. Had some of y'all concerned for my life or it's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the rapper Brother Ali. We'll have more with Ali when we come back in just a minute. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. 
Have you listened to Jordan Jesse Go? If you like the sound of Young America, give Jordan Jesse Go a try. It's a fun, freewheeling comedy show about everything and nothing. JJ Go is an iTunes staff favorite. Search for Jordan Jesse Go in iTunes or visit MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the rapper Brother Ali. He's one of the leading lights of the Minneapolis-based label Rhymesayers Entertainment. When did you first meet um, Slug and Ant and uh, your collaborators in, in Rhymesayers, the, the label that you've been recording for, for your whole career? Um, it's, it's, it's a little later than I w- wished that it was. Um, <laughs> You know, because like I was from, I was when we came, I settled in the North Minneapolis, the uh, North Side of Minneapolis. They were all based out of the South Side of Minneapolis, which, when you're a teenager, might as they might as well have been in Florida. Um, and we, there wasn't a hip hop scene in Minneapolis. What there was was um, a punk scene with guys like you had uh, Craig Finn on your show not too long ago, and he was a big in the punk scene uh, with the band Lifter Puller. And there was, um, you know, Husker Du, and there was like a, a tradition of punk and uh, Dillinger Four, like so there was punk rock and indie rock going on, uh, kind of with the white kids, and then with the black kids there was like this kind of remnants of the Prince, Morris Day, and the Time, kind of scene. Like a mint condition. Oh yeah, mint condition. Actually, yeah, those are my, those are my boys. Man, I love them guys. They they played. They were my backup band on Conan O'Brien. Um. But yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of what it was. Mint condition. There was a group called Next that came out from Minneapolis in the kind of like mid to late '90s. That was kind of from that scene. And so, uh, Ron Sayers was on the south side of Minneapolis, and they were playing in the coffee shops and the indie rock clubs and the punk rock clubs, bringing hip hop to them. So there wasn't hip hop clubs. And I was on the north side of Minneapolis in the places where you know mint condition might have played when they were starting out i was in the r&b clubs trying to do hip-hop there so we kind of weren't crossing paths for a long time until the guy who's my dj now bk1 um had an underground hip-hop radio show at the university of minnesota that kind of united i mean it wasn't just that show but that was kind of one of the the beginning of the hip-hop scene starting to really come together and so i met them through through that radio show and did some shows and and um, eventually saw that also these guys were a few years older than me and so all these kind of independent things that I had been doing my whole life making my own music selling my own tapes at school um, you know uh, cleaning bathrooms and clubs so that they would let me perform carrying equipment for DJs at the high school dance so he would let me perform at the dance stuff like that I was already kind of on this do your do it yourself kind of thing but when I met them they were just so far advanced from where I was at that um I just really gravitated to them and it was just kind of a matter of time were you surprised when you started to tour with them and um uh first started to do shows for this audience that they had built in in rock clubs yeah, I really was. I really thought that it was a unique thing for Minneapolis. I didn't I didn't quite understand that hip hop was at that point where um you know, when I was a kid, like when we keep getting back to this thing of race and I don't want to keep harping on it, but when I was a kid it was all, all black where I was. It was a black thing. Um and there would be one white kid at every rap party, every hip hop party. 
um, who had to really prove why he could, why he was allowed to be there. He had to earn his space there. And it kind of seems like right around, you know, the early 2000s, late 90s, um, a good number of those white kids grew up into serious hip hop artists. And so because of that, you started having listeners who never felt comfortable in a hip hop setting um, start to see artists that look like them. And they said, oh, OK, this person is just like me. Well, I guarantee most of us didn't relate to them or didn't feel a connection to them at all in, in high school. But now this is who listens. And I thought that was a really unique thing in Minneapolis because we had Atmosphere, which is like the biggest group like that. You know what I mean? Who are actually not white if, you know, they're they're like biracial or multi-ethnic or whatever. Um, but they were kind of seen as like, okay, now there's white rappers, so now they're talking to me, so now I can listen and now I can be involved in hip-hop too. But when I went on tour with them is when I started really realizing that there's a brand new audience of people listening to hip-hop. And, and yeah, it definitely really caught me off guard. Did it make you look differently at, at yourself and what you were doing? Did it did it kick you off guard in that regard? I think that very first tour, I went on a three-month tour where, and I, and I was still living in North Minneapolis where, you know, on my block and just kind of in my immediate circle, I wasn't around any white people at all. You know what I mean? I, I wasn't close to my family. And um, I worked at the mosque and... You know, I just did not interact with white people hardly ever. And if, if I did, it was people who lived there. So, you know, it, it, I didn't even think about it. And then I went on this tour and I was just like kind of out of my element, I felt like for three months. Like we tour like, like you know, the way that punk rock and indie rock and rock people tour. We don't just do the big markets like we do everything. And we go out and we do six, seven shows a week for, you know, 10 to 12 weeks. And so I, it did take me a little bit of getting used to um, until I started to really realize that, like, this music is me and I'm going to make the music that comes out of me and that's real to me. And whoever relates to it, um, I believe in myself and I know that I'm real. And so whoever connects with it, that connection is real. If I'm real and what I'm saying is real, then whoever attaches onto it is genuine. And, and I still believe that. And ever since that switch flipped in my head, which was probably about a month into that tour, um, I really have just absolutely loved doing what I do. It feels like um, your most recent LP, The Undisputed Truth, was sort of a document of um, your life changing completely. Um, it, it has a, a, a really uh, a really difficult song about you uh breaking up with your wife and it has a really joyful beautiful song about looking forward to your life in the future yeah that's exactly right um and i wonder i wonder how you feel this how you feel this new EP is situated on that timeline do you feel like you've gotten where you want to be yet um, I'm I'm really close to it. Um, you know, I kind of, I, I try to do a lot of things with my albums, and one of them is kind of give the real kind of, I don't want to say followers or fans, but like the people that are really connected and really kind of follow it in the sense that, you know, almost like they follow their uh, a sports 
player that they that you feel connected to. Um, but one of the things I do is just kind of do little things to update them on where I'm at. And, um, you know, in my earlier stuff, you hear me kind of living in the hood and going through that kind of shit. And then, you know, like you said, I talk about basically changing my whole life on that album, on Undisputed Truth. And I give a little bit of an update on... Um, there's a song called Real As Can Be on the EP, on the, on the Truth Is Here EP. Where I'm just kind of like, man, I'm out here touring and had kind of a great kind of crazy couple years because of the way that Undisputed Truth was received. If I wake up in a hotel room or on the bunk of a bus, middle of nowhere, shit, I'm completely fine. But let me wake up in my crib, I get to flipping my wig anywhere as long as it isn't mine. I've been on the road seven out the past eight months. Wanna live, you gotta give your love and fans what they want. So if they want the truth, you gotta tell them it's here. Ask Randy Hawkins, man, I had a hell of a year. My first headlining tour, my album in stores, and I finally got to see what all that grinding been for. To get down for the cause and catch around. Of applause and to see the shit I spit get printed out in the source. My heroes brought me on tour. I said, Allah who act bar. Thank you, God. I don't know what else I could bother you for. Got me out in California at this Walmart store with the Lord Rock Kim. We're chilling, shopping for draws. I blew my little video budget. Where I got, you know, went on tour with Rock Kim a couple times and did my own headlining tours and, and was finally, you know, getting some recognition for what I do. But on the next full length album, um, I've got, you know, a, a song that really kind of covers what's been going on since then. And I do really feel like I'm like I'm in that space now where it's it's all starting to pay off. You know, where all those sacrifices that I made it's really scary to to change your change, change your whole life at once cuz you're used to it, right? You have like a there's a certain security and and um that you have with what's familiar. And even so, so that's why a lot of times, even though people know that their situation is toxic for them, they don't change it because it's just so scary. Because like, what's going to replace this? And um, I was, just, I had great people around me. My my faith helped me a lot. The fact that I was starting to do music full time as a career gave me a lot of confidence. And um, so I went ahead and made those changes. And there was a time where there was nothing to replace it, and I was homeless with my son and was like really on my ass and like really was fucked up and didn't know where what was going to happen. And um but I believed that I was going to have this certain kind of life for myself and man, it's it's coming true. It really is coming true. Well, Ali, I'm I'm so happy for it. I'm so happy to have you on the Sound of Young America. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. My guest brother Ali's brand new EP is called The Truth Is Here. It's a follow-up to his LP, The Undisputed Truth. I say the good Lord made me what I am, and I play this game for keeps. Gotta use what I have to get what I want. All the dream I got is his dream. And the good Lord made me what I am, and I play the hand I'm dealt. Says sometimes the hardest thing to be in this world is just yourself. Best believe the Quran influenced all of my songs. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. This week's show edited by me, which is probably why it's so poorly edited. Our intern is John Kim. My dog's name is uh, Coco the Brown Brown Dog. 
You can visit us online at MaximumFun.org and email me directly at jesse at MaximumFun.org. And uh, I think that's just about everything. So we'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.